1: Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli.
4: I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast.
3: Well, hello, folks, and welcome to our second Tennis Relived Wimbledon 2021 edition. Yesterday, we covered 1973 and the boycott year on the men's side at Wimbledon. We hope you enjoyed that. And now we're back with, well, a number of years, a journey, if you will. You're going to go on a journey with us, a journey whose destination is equal prize money, not only at Wimbledon, but at the four Grand Slams, because Wimbledon was... The final slam to award equal prize money, but the penultimate slam to announce and make the decision that it was awarding equal prize money. In fact, it was the French Open uh, that was the last slam to capitulate. But of course, the French Open coming before Wimbledon in the calendar, they got to do the actual handing over of the cheque before Wimbledon did. It's a very long journey. It's one for which we've spoken to some quite excellent people, including Billie Jean King. It's one for which, well, we scheduled this whole episode around Matt's haircut, which never happened. (laughs) Matt Matt comes to us with 1970s hair, somewhat appropriately.
4: (laughs) And we'll be staying with 1970s hair for at least two more weeks. Through Wimbledon. uh, Even more 1970s. It was was going to be a slightly awkward haircut, actually, because I abandoned this hairdresser for another one and hadn't gone back to this one. But now the one I abandoned her for closed down, so I was going back to this one.
3: Oh, you can't go back.
4: But she's been contact traced and I'm having to stay (laughs) away.
3: (laughs) You're having a nightmare, Matt. Mm. Can I introduce you to some Putney-based barbers while you're here?
4: Yeah, maybe. I'm a bit scared of Putney-based barbers.
3: Uh, Matt is moving into Tennis Podcast Towers, uh, i.e. my flat, come Sunday. And that is when the Daily Wimbledon Tennis Podcast will begin. Uh, For anybody screaming at your device. But there's been a draw. There must be predictions. You will get all of that in great detail come Sunday. So don't you worry. Today, though, David, is about
2: the past. Yes, mm. lovely, uh, <laughs> and, and, and I think a particularly. I mean, it's a story we we were always destined to tell. Um, the journey to equal prize money, but I think since um, since you got on sort of text message terms with Billie Jean King, this felt like the right time. And uh, and, and boy, does she deliver in this show. Um, and and, it, and honestly, it is just who, who better to tell the story than the woman more responsible than anybody else on the planet for it coming about.
3: It's her story, really. We're just providing some accoutrement, if you will, Also providing accoutrement for this episode is Jeff Augustine, um, who's our guest editor for the show. We gave him a few options. We gave all of our guest editors a few options of what they'd like their show to focus on. And he selected uh, the journey to equal prize money. And um, he explained his decision by saying, I'm a gay black man and I've always been interested in the history of discrimination, especially in entertainment and sports because they can be a catalyst for social political change or styming it. I believe that both in the larger political sphere and among fans and viewers, sports and entertainment has the power to change or reinforce explicit and implicit bias, which is a brilliant explanation. And once again, uh, we've got a listener and a guest editor that's done us proud for this episode. So, Jeff, thank you for being with us on this journey. Um, A journey that it's difficult to say exactly where it begins other than sort of the history of time.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's a maddeningly long journey.
3: Yes, yes. You know where it ends. But yeah, you know, it's sort of one of those it was ever thus situations. I suppose in terms of significant background story that we need to tell to set the scene for the work of Billie Jean King and her fellow activists in bringing about equal prize money, is Title IX, which is a bill uh, in the United States, now enshrined in United States law, which states that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education programme or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And in the words of Billie Jean King, these are 37 words that changed everything. The bill was brought in in 1972 and that was follow following on from a lot of campaigning. Uh, Billie Jean King spent a lot of time on, on Capitol Hill pushing for it because there was the Civil Rights Act of, of 1964 in the States and that was written to end discrimination on the basis of sex, religion, race, colour... And national origin in the area of employment, but it didn't prohibit gender discrimination in public education and federally assisted programs. Um, So in 1971, before Title IX was passed by Richard Nixon, only 1% of college college athletic budgets went to women's sports programs. And at high school level, male athletes outnumbered female athletes 12.5 to 1%. So the law opened doors, removed barriers for girls and women, and while female athletes in their sports programmes still have fewer teams, fewer scholarships, lower budgets than their male counterparts, since the introduction of Title IX, female participation at high school level has grown by 1,057% and by 614% at the college level. So talk about cause and effect. Um, The impact, this is from Billie Jean King's website, the impact of... Title IX stretches into professional sports as well. More opportunities have emerged for young women to turn their sport into their career, particularly in the WNBA. Collegiate and professional coaching opportunities have increased as well. And Title IX is still the only law in the US that grants women any kind of equality because the Equal Rights Amendment, which was being campaigned for prominently throughout the 70s, 60s and 70s, was never signed into law. Um, I know Joe Biden has pledged to do so some 40 something years later, but it is the only element of US law that guarantees equality, gender equality, which which is amazing. So that's kind of, that's the backdrop to all of this and a really important backdrop because that was signed into law in 1972. And in 1973, it feels like everything's happening. <laughs> Suddenly, everything starts happening. I mean, the boycott was also happening, as we heard about yesterday. But, you know, aside from other rumblings, just on the gender equality front, you know, it feels like something is in motion. We will, we're going to hear Billie Jean describe in just a moment that the WTA was formed in June of that year, a week before Wimbledon. In August of that year, the US Open was staged and it offered equal prize money for the first time. It was the first Grand Slam to do so. Margaret Court was the champion. She beat Chris Evert and Yvonne Goulagong back-to-back to clinch the winner's cheque of $25,000. Uh, John John Newcomb won the men's title. He won the same amount of money. And Margaret Court told Bud Collins after the win, I'm not a women's libber. I've never asked for equal prize money. <laughs>
2: You're welcome, <laughs>
3: uh, but you're getting it anyway. <laughs> um, and then the battle of sex—the battle of the sexes—you know, Billie Jean King, Bobby Riggs took place just weeks later, just weeks following the U.S. Open. And at that point, it must have felt like dominoes were set in motion; that it was inevitable that they would all continue to fall. But of course, spoiler alert, the last one didn't fall until 2007. So let's hear from Billie Jean King now for the first time. We'll be hearing from her plenty throughout this podcast. But here she is in her own words to describe that period, starting with the moment that she realized that women didn't receive equal prize money
1: in her sport. Well, that happened in 1968, the first year of Open Tennis. And Rod Laver and I both won Wimbledon. Of course, he won the men's singles. And he got a, a check for 2,000 pounds. And my check was for 750 pounds. So I went, oh, no. We just got open tennis. We just finally have the pros, which I was very excited about. And then I realized, oh, boy, we're in trouble already if I'm getting that. It was, what, 37.5%, I think, of the prize money. So I, I was like, you know, I told I told Larry, my, my former husband, I can't, you know, I said, this is not good, but he had already warned us. The men were going to try to get rid of us. So it's like, he was so right. And I was so wrong because all these guys are my friends. You know, I played national tennis league with labor, Gonzalez, Rosewall, Stolly, Emerson, Jimeno, all these guys who I adore as friends. They still are the ones that are alive. And, um, it was not a good time. Uh, and then so as we started the you know 1970 with the original nine and the tour and all that, it never left us that we were not getting equal prize money. And we started talking about it in 68 immediately. At least I did. I walked up into the I remember walking into into the dressing room. We call it a locker room, but dressing room and telling the women this is not good. There weren't, there weren't very many people left because at the finals, it gets very uh, empty up there. But it started really, for me personally then, um, just starting to talk about it and how can we, first of all, hang in there and have tournaments and get paid. And the ratio of prize money was terrible. To be honest, we thought we might be bye-bye or just amateurs playing as a warm-up. Um, it was really a scary time.
3: When you queried it, At the time, when you had that realization, when you queried it uh, with whoever your counterparts, powers that be, how was it justified to you that inequality
1: that we're worth less? We don't have the draws, but the same amount of people watch it, the finals and all that at Wimbledon. It's not like and they BBC was televising them, so uh, it's just it's just a reflection and a microcosm of society that you know we make less money in whatever job. That's why, you know, fighting for equal pay for equal work. And yes, we're so far behind. Let's just, let's just say the men do better. Well, they've been in the market. They've been in the marketplace in a very different way than us. They always get the limelight. They always make sure they get the most there, but that's in society. You have to break these, these thoughts and these platforms down. So we just started talking about it. And of course, then we're just hustling to have a tournament, let alone prize money. And then when we finally started the tour in 71, then we started to seriously start talking about equal prize money. And I used to remember telling them when we have to have equal prize money in the majors, because it's so important. It's about the message. It's not just about the money. It's about sending a message. Since we're a global sport, we have an opportunity to really help make the world a better place and I just can't imagine people wouldn't want the same for their daughter as their son or whatever gender they may decide to be. I I just never, I don't understand that. Of course, I grew up with a brother who played professional sports. My dad believed in me as much as my brother. I think that was very helpful. So, you know, just getting me in a frame of mind that we should not settle for less and people should not, whether they're of color, it just doesn't matter. Don't settle for less. So uh, the campaign was on when I got that 750-pound that check and Rod Laver got 2,000 pounds, at least for me personally. What would you say
2: were the key points of progress along the way from there until when, for instance, Wimbledon finally agreed to it in t- 2007?
1: I think we thought we had a better chance in the US than others because I definitely knew more people. Uh, we all knew more people, sponsors, etc. So in 1972, I was really getting restless because I knew if we didn't get going, we're probably never going to help. You know, we're not going to be able to change things. And so I know we talked, you know, Rosie and Francois Stewart, Betty Stowe, all these players, uh, Ann Jones. We really kept talking about it all the time. And finally, I don't know, I kind of put my foot in my mouth in 72 and said, I don't think we should play next year if we don't get equal prize money. And it really stinks. I said, it really stinks. And so of course that people started talking about that, but during the 1972 U S open, I had gone around and talking to sponsors and I said, would anybody be willing to make up the difference in the total prize money? And it was about 50 to 55,000, would get it up to even because we weren't in the big monies yet in tennis. And got, I've got very lucky. Bristol Myers said yes. Then I go, okay, okay, here we go. Because now you have to remember Larry and I owned tournaments by now for a couple of years. So we understood the other side of the business sponsorship, operations, all the different things that go into an event. So I know that money talks. So I talked to Billy Talbert. We had a private meeting uh, right on the stadium court. There's a little hut that used to be there where the tournament referee would sit and he could watch the matches there. There's only space for two people. We had these two wooden little chairs. We turned them around so we faced each other. And I said to Billy Talbert, who had been a great player himself, uh, who I admired, good business person. I said, Billy, we have to change things. We have to have. Equality. We have to have equal prize money. And he just sat there and looked at me. And I said, "Well, there's two two things I brought to you today. Is that Cece Martinez has done a fan survey, which she did I think in either '70 or '71. I brought that. That's as close as we could get to data and analysis that we have today. And it showed that actually the fans were much more positive about the women than we anticipated. And he saw that, and he said, "Okay, that's nice. But I knew that wouldn't talk. And then I said, "Well. We also have a sponsor will will make up the difference in the total prize money. I knew that would get him, and his head swiveled on that one, and he looked at me like, really? And I said, yes. He said, who? I said, Bristol Myers. He goes, Bristol Myers? Oh, okay. He said, okay, I'll think about it. So in July of 73, they did announce it, and it was announced by the Bristol Myers guy. Uh, I think he was VP of Bristol Myers product division. And his name was Joseph Kalenberger and they use band deodorant as their product. They have many products because I, I had said the year before it stinks. So that's why they chose band deodorant and uh, it was pretty thrilling. And then I tried to find in the minutes when they named the Billie Jean King national tennis center, I tried to find in the minutes when this happened and, and I was, Couldn't find it, but I just was very positive about the board of directors and all this in my speech. And guess what? There's no record of it. Nobody can find any record of the board voting for this at all. I think Billy Talbert took it um, upon himself and just announced it in July of 73 because we got prize money in 73. Yet it
2: took from there 30, 34 years (laughs)
1: wimbledon (laughs) david you noticed it was a long haul that that's sounds staggering well we weren't going to let up and because we had a wta by now that was huge and through the years we kept trying and the australian went back and forth back and forth some years the best women would go to australia but the best men wouldn't so the years that the women were there they give equal price money and then when the best guys would go down there they give us less than equal so that went back and forth but by i think in 2001 it went to equal finally whoa (laughs) 2001 after just going back and forth and then 2007 was the was the watershed we got i said if we just get the three you know the fourth is going to fold come on we have to do this and so Wimbledon announced February 22nd in uh, 2007 that it would have equal prize money in, in 07. And Roland Garros followed them on March 16th, 2007 and came in because I knew they would if we could get Wimbledon or the other way, the French. That, that was great because 07 was huge. And then Venus Williams, who had been out front for us the last few years and tried to help. uh, It was so perfect that she won Wimbledon in in 07. I thought it was just perfecto. I thought, how how appropriate. So uh, it all came good. But I'll tell you the reason it really happened was our executive directors, like Jerry Diamond back in 74, 75, pushing and pushing. But the one who made the biggest difference was Larry Scott. We'll be hearing from Larry Scott. David's uh, spoken to me, somebody
3: that David knows from from back in the day. Um, I love that Billie Jean King remembers the exact dates uh, that the French Open and Wimbledon announced that they would have equal prize money. I I like to imagine her throwing some sort of birthday style event on those dates.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. And that that is something that I find. Extraordinary about her generally is her her. We, we were talking about it with Richard Evans in the uh, the boycott story yesterday. That the recall, the detail, the but that this is what consumed her, really wasn't it? This is what was her purpose in in life, and one one of many in terms of equality, and uh, and it still drives her today. Uh, I I love every bit of it.
4: Yeah, this is this is not an original thought, but just when you hear Billie Chin King talk about that, it just emphasizes again the effort she went to and, and what a team player she was in an individual sport, you know, f- fighting for a greater good for everyone. It, it is incredible what she did.
3: And winning Grand Slam titles At just sort of on time. the side. As a sort of by the way. <laughs> yeah. i the, the triple crown. I've just won the triple crown. Yeah, again. <laughs> Absolute rock star. Um, just to, just before we do hear from from Larry Scott, just to flesh out a couple of couple of things, a couple of bombs that Billie Jean just sort of dropped um, in that because you know she mentioned that it wasn't that the next Grand Slam to go was the Australian Open in two thousand um, and one, and this is uh, from an article in the Guardian. I found this: the the Australian Open had actually offered female and male champions the same prize in the mid 80s and early 90s. And in fact, in 1987 and 1988, the women were even paid slightly more than the men um, because of the far stronger field that the women had in those in those years. But pay equality had lapsed over several years and it was consistently paying the men more uh, by the 90s. But finally, in 2001, the Australian Open became only the second tournament to commit to pay parity. And then again, you might think that other all the other slams would just follow suit like dominoes falling. But it, that just didn't happen. Um, and it was interesting, Billie Jean King saying there, you know, I knew we had to get three. I knew the only, you know, the, the critical mass was three. You know, I would I would have thought that after one, the other, it would be you know so exposing for the others to not offer it. But how naive would I have been? Um, so by two thousand and one, you have two slams, and I just wanted to draw attention to an article that I that I found in the Sports Illustrated Vault. Uh, I've got all Matt Roberts here uh, from July of that year. So. This is uh, after that Australian Open that offered equal prize money for the first time. This is by Rick Riley. It says Did you hear what happened to Venus Williams after she won Wimbledon on Sunday? She was robbed. She had $52,923 ripped right out of her purse in broad daylight. Instead of getting $705,109, which men's winner Goran Ivanovich received on Monday, she earned about a new Lexus less. You talk about a grass ceiling. Not only that, but it also happened to Jennifer Capriati this year at the French Open. The dinosaurs who run that tournament gave her $29,306 less than the men's winner, Gustavo Quirton. Leave it to tennis to Jack, the only group of players anybody wants to see. You don't believe me? Let's compare, shall we? This uh, I should warn you, David, the following paragraphs do not reflect well on the movement. <laughs>
4: <laughs> not for the first time, the movement <laughs> under fire on the tennis podcast.
3: Yeah, or may, well, actually, maybe the following pa- paragraphs highlight the need for the movement at the time. But anyway... He says, in the women's top 10, you have the riveting slam sisters, Venus and Serena's, the tempestuous Martina Hingis, the sports story of the year in Capriati, the tragic Monica Sellers, and the big Tedet bear. I don't know what one of those is, but anyway, the big Tedet bear, Lindsay Davenport. Not to mention at number 11, the world's leading cause of whiplash, Anna Kournikova. In the men's top 10, you have nine guys you couldn't pick out of a pinto full of Domino's delivery men, <laughs> plus Andre Agassi. Combined, most. <laughs> Most of the top 10 men have the Q rating of a lamp. Seriously, is Evgeny Kafelnikov a tennis player or something you cure with penicillin? Uh, the women play amazing, long, topsy-turvy, edge-of-your-seats points. The men hit 140-mile-per-hour aces nobody can see and then ask for a towel. Everything <laughs> is serve and towel, serve and towel. It's like being at a cocktail party with Boris Yeltsin. In a third-round Wimbledon match, even Isovic had 41 aces against Andy Roddick, who had 20. It's unclear how the rest of the points were won because the official statistician fell asleep. <laughs> If men's tennis is to be saved, somebody had better start decompressing these guys' balls. Then yeah. something has to be done about the equipment. The women we know by first names. Can you believe what Martina said about Serena? They hate one another, insult one another's fathers, insult their own fathers, bump each other on changeovers, wear body-hugging technical addresses designed by Edward Scissorhands and generally provide more storylines than six months' worth of All My Children, all of which will come splattering out later this month in a new book about the women's tour. Venus Envy. The men, on the other hand, stand around killing the grass. Except for Agassi, (laughs) they all look like the slackers you have to shoo away from the door of your Starbucks. They're so dull, they make (laughs) tennis writers bang their heads against their laptops. From what we know, there are no books coming out about the men. They're lucky to make the white pages. (laughs) (laughs) He goes on to say uh, that the French Open women's final on NBC drew almost twice as many viewers as, as the men. The Capriati's uh, Wimbledon quarterfinal match last week pulled in 25% more viewers than Pete Sampras's fourth round of the day before. At that time, the 10 most searched for athletes on Lycos, I assume a forerunner to uh, Google, we're in a pre-Google time here. The top 10 most search for athletes during one week leading up to Wimbledon, four were women's tennis stars. Kornikova, Hingis, Dokic and Serena, none were male tennis stars. Um, and it also cites the quote from John McEnroe, who said, men may eventually have to sue for equal pay. So, you know, we are going to hear defences of unequal pay along the lines of market forces and I didn't hear many of those people circa this article making the same case in the other direction let's put it that way Um, yeah so that I thought I thought that just painted a lovely scene (laughs) of where we were in 2001 Desperately, David, pushing the movement. He's a brilliant writer, Rick Riley. Uh, that, that, I hadn't read
2: that one. That was fantastic.
4: <laughs> I'm immediately going back to read
2: all of his other articles. <laughs> yeah. No, he's very well known in uh, in America particularly. Oh, that's sensational. Yeah,
3: I discovered him this morning and I will be doing a deep dive later on.
2: Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right.
3: But back to Larry Scott, um, he became the CEO of the WTA two years after that article was written in April 2003. And as Billie Jean King hinted at, uh, as we heard before, at that point, there's a shift and momentum begins to grow. Now, David, you knew Larry Scott at the time. Um, he joined the WTA from the ATP, which is where you were working at the time. Who was he? What was your experience of him? Why did his join the, the WTA cause a shift?
2: Well, he was at the ATP when I joined in 1998, and he was the chief operating officer so effectively, number two behind the CEO, who was Mark Miles. Now, it was a very male environment, as you wouldn't be surprised to hear. The Association of Tennis Professionals, and it was a male-only organization of which I was a part. And and I'm, I I always got on well with Larry. I liked Larry. He was a really good operator, I thought. But I found it very interesting when he joined the Women's Tennis Association as their CEO, as their top person. I think partly because, I I, I mean, I, I could understand the move. He was moving from a number two role to a number one role. But then when the quest for prize money became more into focus, I, I remember trying to think to myself, I don't remember Larry ever talking about equal prize money being important. Now, and that's kind of the first question I asked him when I spoke to him in the interview, um, is... Where was it on your radar at that at that point? And and he ad, he admitted he said, look, that was not a priority for us. We were focused on ourselves. Um, but I did have a good relationship. I was f- a f- family friends. My wife was friends as well with the former WTA CEO Anne Worcester, who's now running uh, the the Universal Tennis Rankings. You know, significant figure in the sport, and she was CEO of the WTA for for four years. So he he said he felt that he understood the arguments and the reasons for them a lot more maybe than some of the other people at the ATP at that time. But then when he went to the WTA, he said, even though I went there and that was part of the, the kind of interviewing process of getting the job to talk about the importance of trying to achieve equal prize money, he said it wasn't number one. Number He said it was number two. Number one was about improving their own offering, their own product, their own economic viability and trying to improve what they've got and he said i kind of uh, i kind of kept motion out of it early on in particular and and i sort of said to the players first of all i need your buy-in i can't do this on my on my own because i'm just going to be looked at as a hired gun a, a, a suit um so i need you to be to be able to get in there and make it clear to everybody how important this is to you but he said first of all I felt like I needed to improve the the economic status of the tour itself and show uh, whether you like it or not show the market forces argument that Rick Riley is mentioning there that he that it needed to be that needed to be removed from the equation almost as a as a way to criticize women's tenets and and I mean, look, he was really good at that stuff. I remember at the ATP, he he brought in some really good deals. And when he was at the WTA, he signed a huge deal with Sony Ericsson for about eighty million. Um, he got good TV deals in, and so they they were an incredibly strong product, if you like. Um, but he said, as it went along, he sort of started to realise that actually, equal prize money was was about something more and uh, and i found and, and we ended up only using the latter part of the interview because of that because you started to see this this passion that i feel like he developed once he got there really i think he he had an awareness beforehand but then it started to consume him and i think people like Billie jean king they have that effect on you they make you understand what's at stake
3: mm That's that's really interesting because it sort of looking back at the trajectory trajectory of this, you can you can feel from 2003 to 2005 just that head of steam building up, and it sounds like that reflects Larry Scott's own commitment to the cause and and passion for the cause, and so we get to the point that of 2005 where it feels like it's reaching ahead, uh, a crescendo. The the players' buy-in has been secured. And in particular, Venus Williams' buy-in has been secured. And she is, she's the woman at the time. She and her sister, Serena, you know, they're, they're at the absolute top of their game. And of course, we come to Wimbledon 2005 and a very well-publicised, much-talked-about now board meeting Grand Slam board meetings held at Wimbledon something that we talked about as part of Wimbledon Relived last year when we were talking about the women's final of 2005 between Lindsay Davenport and uh, Venus Williams which sort of Billie Jean King-esque just so happened to be an extraordinary match that Venus Williams won but the night before it Venus Williams attended this board meeting that Larry Scott was obviously at, and here are his recollections of that meeting.
0: I remember Wimbledon in 2005, the player meeting, which we always do at the beginning of the tournament, the weekend before it starts, the men do it, the women do it, having a top player meeting and updating them on kind of the campaign for equal prize money and let them know I was, I thought making good arguments. We'd done research, consumer attitude research, quantitative research, presented to the Grand Slam. I didn't feel like we were making a lot of traction. And I said to, I think it was a top 10 player meeting. I said, you know, I am invited to speak to the Grand Slam committee at mostly every Grand Slam at the end of the tournament on the day between our semifinals and the finals. So it'd be on Friday, the the day of the men's semi, the women are off. That happens to be the day that I get invited to come into the Grand Slam committee. meeting. So I looked at the 10 top 10 players sitting around the room. I said, I don't know which of you will still be here, but I think the time is right. I would like, you know, one or two of you to join me for this meeting with the Grand Slam Committee. So not only they hear from me, but I think it's very important they hear from you as the players. So everyone nodded. And again, I had I had enough experience with uh, tennis players, on the men's side, as well as the women's side to know that I couldn't really take that to the bank. I wasn't sure <laughs> that anyone would remember that by the end of the tournament. I'd probably have to make some phone calls and talk to the agents of the time. Sure enough, we get toward the end of the tournament and um, uh, we get through semifinal, final day, Venus 100 semi. And, and about two hours after the semifinal match, my phone rings and it's Venus. She and I had a good relationship and worked on some other things, but I took the call. And she says, what time are we on for the Grand Slam committee meeting? I had not had one word with her, her agent, or anyone else since that top 10 player meeting the weekend before the tournament started. So this tells you a lot about Venus Williams. That often is not appreciated or understood. She did not forget this mattered to her, and she initiated the contact with me. awesome. Um, I'm on the next morning, 9.00 AM let's meet, you know, 845 on the lawn and, uh, you know, have, have a chat and go in. And I said, Venus, I'll, I'll make some introductory remarks and then I'm going to, you know, turn it over to you. I think it would be great to hear from you. So the next morning we go in and I, I, I let Tim Phillips, who was the chair at the time, you know, no, I'd like to bring Venus uh, with me. And he was delighted. Fine. I think it was a little trepidation probably. I don't think a player had ever come into a Grand Slam committee meeting before. So Venus and I walked down, you know, the uh, All England offices and go into the room. And there were um, about 12 representatives of the Grand Slams. It was the chair, some vice chair from each of the Grand Slam, the chief executive, all sitting sitting around the table. And I started talking about how I thought Tom was right. You know, made the economic arguments, the research we had done and all that. Why I thought it was the morally right thing. To do um, for uh, Roland Garrison Wimbledon to join uh, the Australian Open, and US Open. And then I turned it over to Venus. And to my surprise, I didn't know exactly what she would say. She started by saying, you know, thanks for having me here. Um, can I ask you all to just close your eyes for a moment? Which, you know, stunned me, everyone else. So everyone, you know, closes their eyes and listen. And she gave this, you know, beautiful, and passionate talk about you know imagine yourself a little girl growing up dreaming one day of being a pro tennis player and hoping you'd have the same opportunity a little boy would have and then you grow up and you realize you don't have it and i won't uh, repeat you know the whole, whole speech but it was at a very emotional level and it was clear that she felt deeply about this and that it had an impact on her and she was worried about future generations everyone opened their eyes had a discussion they were polite and uh and that was it it was stunning and uh and, th- and then we left so uh that's that's what happened in 2005.
3: Amazing amazing and I just wanted to mention um a woman called Jane Brown Grimes because she was the only other woman in that Grand Slam board meeting that day, besides Venus Williams. Uh, She was a non-voting member um, uh, of the board as she was the USTA's first vice president. She went on to be uh, president of the USTA for a couple of years. Um, And she is now 80 years of age and is currently working on her PhD thesis with Cambridge University. And the thesis examines women's tennis from the start of the Open Era in 1968 up until Wimbledon in 2007. And a and a big prong of that is equal prize money and Billie Jean King and all the rest of it. So, yeah, just wanted to give her a mention because she sounds pretty cool. <laughs> um, so that happens, Wimbledon 2005. Venus Williams wins the title and you think, Sure, okay, this thing's happening now, right? <laughs> but Wimbledon didn't budge um and they didn't budge in spite of the fact that the prize money difference at this stage is pretty much nominal um in two thousand and six uh the the final year um that prize money was unequal for the for the winners at Wimbledon there was a £30,000 difference. It was 625000 versus 655000 That's 4.5%. So it's a matter of principle at this point. You know, it's interesting, you know, Billie Jean King in the first clip we heard from her saying, it's not about the money, it's about the message it sends. Well, at this point, they are, whether they acknowledged it or not, They're specifically doing it in order to send the message. It is absolutely not to do with money. Everybody's agreed on that, except that the powers that be are saying the message we want to send is that you're not equal, which I find really extraordinary.
2: And and you know the excuse they gave at the time? Because I, I looked back on this because of, of the fact that all of this had happened and it still hadn't been equaled. They tried to say... They f- they wanted to be fair to the fact that because men played best of five, they couldn't play doubles as easily and, and be able to earn money from that. And that actually women were taking away more money from the tournament because they were able to play both events. That was the kind of reasoning they were giving. I mean, I, I remember that was when I was at my most furious about all this because of the nominal nature of it. If you've got a really strong conviction and a reason for it, that's one thing. I still don't agree with it, but at least you're making a position that I can understand where you're coming from. This, as you say, this was just digging the heels in and not being prepared to to be to do the right thing. And and I I couldn't have it anymore. myself.
3: Yeah. Well, nor could anybody because because Wimbledon aren't budging. So, I whether there was a, a conversation a sort of you know power rangers type right let's get <laughs> let's let's get dirty with this but tactics start to get more aggressive um in in the two years that follow um and here are both Larry Scott and Billy Jinking in uh, in a David Law created mashup you're welcome um to tell us exactly what tactics they started to use from that point onwards.
0: I had my hopes up that uh, having heard from Venus and seeing the progress the women's tour was making and the personalities, the TV ratings and all that, that 2006 were going to sequel Prize mate. I got a call and, and I had a chance later that year, uh, the All England Club invited me to a board meeting. They had had to talk to him about it again. And I thought the table was set but they were going to announce in February that 2006 championships was going to be equal prize. I thought they'd get there before Roland Garris did for a variety of reasons. Uh, But in February, 2006, I got a call from Tim to say, I know you'll be disappointed in this, but we just don't feel that, uh, you know, the time's right. We're going to increase it a little bit, but that's it. But in the interest of time, that really kind of shook me a little bit. I went to the players after that and I said, you know, we've been trying to do this in a very collegiate, cordial, respectful way behind the scenes. I've been very um, guarded in any public comments. Didn't want to shame anyone, all that. And that's, you know, you commented on one of my comments in 2006. That's when I advocated we change our posture and go more front foot.
1: Larry Scott knew he was going to get the politicians, the businesses, public opinion. He absolutely just went crazy with that. So I remember in April 19th to 2006, he and I did a media conference via phone from Beverly Hills, California, raising the equal prize money issue and challenging the French and Wimbledon to join the US and Australian Open and providing equal prize money for both the men's and women's draw in singles and in doubles. And that's the beginning, really, of Larry just punching and pulling. Then I
0: started making some of the comments saying publicly how I felt, that I thought they were on the wrong side of history. That same year, 2006, Venus Williams penned an op-ed in the Times of London, which was pretty scathing toward Wimbledon. We started lobbying some members of parliament, which led to Tony Blair on the floor of, uh, of parliament in June of 2006, basically saying Wimbledon was on the wrong side of history and he'd like to see equal prize money which shocked the people at the All England Club and all of that. I had no idea he was going to say that. We've been dealing with Tessa Jowell and some other uh, labor and other um, uh, secretaries. But the fact that Tony Blair saw the way the winds were blowing, thought Wimbledon was wrong, made the comment. I think that was the final straw. 2006 went with unequal prize money. I think after that, it was just, you know, it was inevitable. And we kind of laid low, and sure enough, in February of 2007, I got the phone call saying, tomorrow we're going to announce equal prize money. Congratulations.
3: I mean, talk about pressure mounting at this stage. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, once, <laughs> once Tony Blair's getting involved, um, they must have felt really under siege, Wimbledon. Yeah. But the, that op-ed that Venus Williams wrote was was huge. I think was was really really big for setting setting a tone, um, and I, I think it's important that we that we read it to you.
4: Yeah, so this was published on June the twenty sixth, two thousand and six. It's called Wimbledon has sent me a message. I'm only a second class champion, and look, it's a long letter, but it, I think it's important we read it in full. And it's behind a paywall still, isn't it? On the on the mm. time, so it's not always that easy to find so here it is have you ever been let down by someone that you had long admired respected and looked up to little in life is more disappointing particularly when that person does something that goes against the very heart of what you believe is right and fair when i was a little girl and serena and i played matches together we often pretended that we were in the final of a famous tournament more often than not we imagine we were playing on the center court at wimbledon Those two young sisters from Compton, California were Wimbledon champions many times, years before our dreams of playing there became reality. There is nothing like playing at Wimbledon. You can feel the footprints of the legends of the game, men and women, that have graced those courts. There isn't a player who doesn't dream of holding aloft the Wimbledon trophy. I've been fortunate to do so three times, including last year. That win was the highlight of my career to date, the culmination of so many years of work and determination, and at a time when most people didn't consider me to be a contender. So the decision of the All England Lawn Tennis Club yet again to treat women as lesser players than men, undeserving of the same amount of prize money, has a particular sting. I'm disappointed not for myself, but for all of my fellow women players who have struggled so hard to get here, and who, just like the men, give their all on the courts of SW19. I'm disappointed for the great legends of the game, such as Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova and Chris Evert, who have never stopped fighting for equality. I'm disappointed that the home of tennis is sending a message to women across the world that we are inferior. With power and status comes responsibility. Well, Wimbledon has power and status. The time has come for it to do the right thing by paying men and women the same sums of prize money. The total prize pot for the men's event is £5,197,440. For the women, it is £4,446,490. The winner of the ladies' singles receives £30,000 less than the men's winner. The runner-up, £15,000 less. And so on, down to the first round, losers. How can it be that Wimbledon finds itself on the wrong side of history? How can the words Wimbledon and inequality be allowed to coexist? I've spent my life overcoming challenges, and those who said certain things couldn't be achieved for this reason or that reason. My parents taught me that dreams can come true if you put in the effort. Maybe that's why I feel so strongly that Wimbledon's stance devalues the principle of meritocracy, and diminishes the years of hard work that women on the tour have put into becoming professional tennis players. I believe that athletes, especially female athletes in the world's leading sport for women, should serve as role models. The message I like to convey to women and girls across the globe is that there is no glass ceiling. My fear is that Wimbledon is loudly and clearly sending the opposite message. 128 men and 128 women compete in the singles main draw at Wimbledon. The All England Club is saying that the accomplishments of the 128 women are worth less than those of the 128 men. It diminishes the stature and credibility of such a great event in the eyes of all women. The funny thing is that Wimbledon treats men and women the same in so many other respects. Winners receive the same trophy and honorary membership, And as you enter centre court, the two photographs of last year's men's and women's champions are hung side by side, proudly and equally. So why does Wimbledon choose to place a lesser value on my championship trophy than that of the 2005 men's winner Roger Federer? The All England Club is familiar with my views on the subject. At Wimbledon last year, the day before the final, I presented my views to it and its French Open counterparts. Both clearly gave their response. They are firmly in the inequality for women camp. Wimbledon has argued that women's tennis is worth less for a variety of reasons. It says, for example, that because men play a best of five sets game, they work harder for their prize money. This argument just doesn't make sense. First of all, women players would be happy to play five set matches in Grand Slam tournaments. Tim Phillips, the chairman of the All England Club, knows this and even acknowledged that women players are physically capable of this. Secondly, tennis is unique in the world of professional sports. No other sport has men and women competing for a Grand Slam championship on the same stage at the same time. So in the eyes of the general public, the men's and women's games have the same value. Third, athletes are also entertainers. We enjoy huge and equal celebrity and are paid for the value we deliver to broadcasters and spectators, not the amount of time we spend on the stage. And, for the record... The ladies' final at Wimbledon in 2005 lasted 45 minutes longer than the men's. No extra charge. (laughs) Let's not forget that the US Open for 33 years and the Australian Open already award equal prize money. No male player has complained. Why would they? Wimbledon has justified treating women as second class because we do more for the tournament. The argument goes that the top women, who are more likely to play doubles matches than their male peers earn more than the top men if you count singles, doubles and mixed doubles prize money. So the more we support the tournament, the more unequally we should be treated. But doubles and mixed doubles are separate events from the singles competition. Is Wimbledon suggesting that if the top women withdrew from the doubles events, that we would deserve equal prize money in singles? And how then does the All England Club explain why the pot of women's doubles prize money is nearly £130,000 smaller than the men's doubles prize money. Equality is too important a principle to give up on for the sake of less than 2% of the profit that the All England Club will make at this year's tournament, profit that men and women will contribute to equally through sold-out sessions, TV ratings or attraction to sponsors. Of course, one can never distinguish the exact value brought by each sex in a combined men's and women's championship, so any attempt to place a lesser value on the women's contribution is an exercise in pure subjectivity. Let's put it another way. The difference between men's and women's prize money in 2005 was £456,000, less than was spent on ice cream and strawberries in the first week. So the refusal of the All England Club which declared a profit of £25 million from last year's tournament to pay equal prize money, can't be about cash. It can only be trying to make a social and political point, one that is out of step with modern society. I intend to do everything I can until Billie Jean's original dream of equality is made real. It's a shame that the name of the greatest tournament in tennis, an event that should be a positive symbol for the sport, is tarnished.
3: God, it's so good. <laughs> it's really, really great. <laughs> well read. What a piece.
2: Mm. I mean uh, and that that was published on the first day of Wimbledon in two thousand six. I remember it vividly. And I, I I still can't quite believe that they just didn't do something on the spot almost about it
3: yeah I, I can't either Do you well, you presumably would have had to I mean you were you were covering Wimbledon for Five Live by this point David yeah. yeah and was it was it the story was was every yeah. was every other player being asked about it in press conferences oh for sure
2: yeah it was a huge story it just every possible defence of it mm. she just destroys in that piece she sort of anticipates them or has heard them and she's got the answer for them it's um it was indefensible really by that stage and and well they knew it because we didn't go another one but I mean it's it's still jarring to hear that and and realize that that's what was happening on the first day of wondered
4: and I just think Venus's role in in this is so impactful and I read that after her first Wimbledon in in 1998 she commented on the lack of equal prize money then this was something she believed in she had this innate sense of fairness I think I've heard Billie Jean King talk about Venus that you know she would talk about the history of the game with her and Venus might not respond straight away but she would always go away process it and come back with questions or comments on it and I think that really feeds into that story larry scott was talking about how he gave the call 10 days later venus herself sort of takes it upon herself to hear that call and stand up and do something about it and yeah it can't be overlooked what she did what role she had in those in those years to sort of get this across the line
3: Mm. absolutely because my take my take reading up on it is that That was the point at which it became inevitable. The the op-ed from Venus Williams, Tony Blair raising it um, in Parliament. Um, The LTA, uh, the the then chief executive of the LTA, Roger Draper, uh, publicly stated that um, that organisation supported equal prize money. And of course, the LTA are big stakeholders in Wimbledon. That felt like the turning of the tide to me I know I said that about <laughs> 1973 um, and and sure enough it, it, whilst the championships that year proceeded as planned um, in February 2007 Wimbledon announced that they would be offering equal prize money throughout the tournament to men and women Tim Phillips the chairman of the All England uh, Club at the time said that the time is right to bring this subject to a logical conclusion And eliminate the difference. Um, Yeah, which also hints at the sort of inevitability to it as well, which sort of makes you think, why on earth? Why on earth were you holding out for so long? But anyway, um, and then the following month uh, in March of 2007, the French Open announced that they would offer equal prize money as well. And Billie Jean King was absolutely right when she said, once we got three the fourth would have to go. And of course, the French Open got to have their tournament first and give their equal checks first. So kind of the the quiz question answer to which was the last slam to award equal prize money is Wimbledon. But actually, they were the penultimate slam to decide to offer equal prize money. And again, as Billie Jean King said, fittingly, beautifully, poetically, it was Venus Williams that won the title at Wimbledon in 2007, becoming the first woman there to take home the same check as her male counterpart. Um, she beat Marion Bartley in that final. Of course, Bartley went on to win it herself, but but that final was, was very one-sided, possibly due to the appearance of Pierce Brosnan. We'll never know. Um, but it just it felt like there was only going to be one winner that year, and it was absolutely perfect that it, that it was Venus Williams. Um so how how did everybody react to the news of equal prize money at all the slams? We'll we'll hear from Larry Scott and Billie Jean King in just a moment, but I found some some quotes from Venus Williams on it because it's not something she talks about a lot. You know, you just expressed brilliantly, Matt, the significance of her. And I think she kind of feels like I put so much energy to that. I'm into that. I'm proud of it. I'm pleased that I did it. But I, I, you know, she, she's taken a step back from that now, and she doesn't want to talk about it all the time. She's she's paid her dues, if you like, and I absolutely respect that. I'd love to hear from her more personally, but I respect her position. But I did find these quotes from her in 2013 talking to ES, ESPN. She said, "I'm used to winning." I've lost two, but in the overall scheme of things, I'm used to winning. And I'm used to not just winning by chance, but by putting in the work and getting prepared enough to know that I can get the win. I'm not afraid of hard work. None of us were. That was how I saw it, whatever it takes. And I love that. Um, And this this is what Larry Scott and Billie Jean King had to say about their reactions to the news.
0: It had a deeper emotional feeling than I anticipated. I was with my family on holiday and my daughter at that age was four years old. And I remember going to my wife and saying, you wouldn't believe the news I just got. I kissed her and I picked up my daughter who's four. And I said, you know, the world's just changed for you. You're too young to understand this, but something significant just happened. that's going to make your life very different in terms of the opportunities you have. I then, and so I was very emotional and I was tearing about it. I then uh, called Billy Jean King.
1: I think Larry Scott called me and said, we've got it. Or something like we've got equal prize money now. And I was like, so relieved. I, I, I think what happens with people is they don't realize what a relief it is. Even when you win a tournament, it's such a, I don't know how to explain it, but it's such a relief. But I just thought about all the people who had made this happen through the, through the years, all the players, executive directors, sponsors, people who cared about us, you know, loved ones. I mean, I, it, it really does take a lot of people to make these things happen.
0: And my second call was to Venus. She was like, yeah. I mean, I couldn't see her. We didn't have zoom those days, but she was like two fists in the air. Uh, yeah. This is unbelievable. And uh, you know, thank you. She was very, appreciative, but also I think she felt having poured so much of herself into it and made the commitment she had, I think she felt like she had um, done something, been part of something that was going to make a contribution well beyond women's tennis. She's got a very worldly view in that regard. And she felt like she was doing something, not just for her, but future generations of girls.
3: Gosh, that's really emotional. The, um, yeah, Larry Scott talking to his daughter, his young daughter, saying that the world just changed. Wow. Wow, it's incredible.
2: Yeah, I wasn't expecting that in the interview, to be honest, particularly the way it started. I mean, Larry is a corporate uh, operator and a brilliant one at that. He's a wonderful businessman. He he went on and left the WTI. I know it's something Billie Jean King wishes hadn't happened. He left tennis and he went and... Worked as the commissioner for the Pac-12, the U.S. collegiate um, college sports system, and he he was enormously successful. He signed a three billion dollar contract over twelve years for TV rights in in that organization. But that's what I always used to see him as, and that's what he came across as in the first fifteen minutes of our sort of twenty-five minute interview as a, as a as a suit, a, a, a nice suit. I like him, but I didn't expect. The way he spoke in the last ten minutes of that interview, in terms of his detailing of, of Venus at Wimbledon in that meeting, and then his reaction to it, and and I think that that is particularly impactful um, because it showed that this is more important than just business, and uh, and it affects every facet of human life as we know it and uh yeah I mean and he's right he's right it changed it changed the world in a way and so and it you know it made me look at things differently that whole arc when I think back now when I worked at the ATP I think I was probably one of those that I don't want to say I don't know how to put it was maybe sneering at the idea of Women's tennis being as good as men's tennis. I was in that that environment. I was on the men's tour, and I would hear these arguments all the time. Men, male players, sneering, laughing. Look at the way they play tennis. Uh, and and you and I was probably uh, a little bit brainwashed in that way. And and yeah, I think people have to be allowed to evolve and to and to to grow in their views and to be educated and I feel like that has definitely happened to me over the years I think it happened to Larry and hope and I think this sort of outcome and process will have impacted a heck of a lot of people along the way
3: it was 14 years ago now this will be the 15th Wimbledon that is awarded equal prize money to men and to women but of course It is not accurate to say that tennis has equal prize money across the board, even less accurate to say that sport has equal prize money. So as Billie Jean King is constantly reminding us, there's more to do. Um, So what now is the question? And that is the question that Matt asked Billie Jean King. You say you're always
4: thinking about what's next, Billie Jean, Wimbledon gets equal prize money in 2007, and that's this symbolic, important moment for the sport. Well, I think a lot of people will think about tennis as having equal prize money because the slams, the majors do. But we've just had a tournament in Rome, which is an equal level event for men and women, and the men's prize money is more. Is that where the fight is
1: now? Is the Italian always that way? Like the, the men always get more? Mm. Huh? That's a whole other discussion, then, isn't it? I don't know. Sounds like the old days. I got six hundred dollars, and the stars. We got like I don't know, twenty five hundred, thirty five hundred dollars. I don't know. I can remember being so upset with them, and they said, "Too bad," you know. They didn't give. Them. They don't care. And like it's like I started laughing because I love the Italians. Are crazy? I love them. They're warm. They're fun. But let's face it, we're second class citizens there. I mean, we just are. Um, and if we're getting less, I don't know if we should keep playing. Personally, I would do. I don't know what I would do. I'd. Ha- I'd, I'd first of all, I have to know all the people involved, uh, where we have an opportunity behind the scenes to get stuff done. I'm very big on doing everything you can beyond, behind the scenes first. And I mean, absolutely put a lot of time in on that. And if you cannot see any place to go, then you go to the media.
3: Matt Roberts there, just casually lighting a fire under under Billy Jean King.
2: And uh, did she? She didn't didn't take much bait, did she? <laughs> no. I, I absolutely love the kind of oh well, we'll see about that <laughs> kind of feel to uh, to the uh, the news that Rome are paying are paying less. Um, yeah, it, it's just her, her her appetite for it uh, is undimmed at every every turn.
3: Mm. It's, it's incredibly inspiring, her just boundless energy. Um, I, I
2: also, by the way, Catherine, like the fact that Matt is now trying to say majors to appeal to Billy Jean. Yes. And Billie Jean is sometimes saying, trying to say Grand Slam titles to try and get in with Matt, which I <laughs> yeah. really
3: like. Not gone unnoticed, Matt. <laughs> I, did, I did a really
4: terrible fudge there, didn't I? Slams, majors... Oh, yes, she's doing the same, though, Matt.
2: You know, you mm. you're both, you know, it's like Americans and Brits. You're a to... people
3: pleaser, Matt. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I mean, we we re-recorded that interview with her just after Rome, as as Matt said, and there, the men's winner received two hundred forty-five thousand euros, and the women's winner received one hundred seventy-eight thousand. Now, I know you could say the men's is a one thousand, and the women's is what was a a premier. 5 um it's it's a 500 now isn't it um but i mean that's that's just looking for justification as as far as i'm concerned Miami Indian Wells Madrid uh they do all have equal prize money and have done for a number of years but the premier 5 events what were the 500s now um uh, Rome Cincinnati Canada they have far from equal prize money and those are joint events, crucially. Um, there are some events, Beijing, Beijing for example, uh, where women do earn more money and more points than the men. They're held back-to-back rather than concurrently, um, but the disparity is much steeper at events where the ATP tournament is of a higher designation. Broadly, um, across the board, in tennis, women earn... 80 cents on the dollar to to what the men earn. Um, This is from Ben Rothenberg from the New York Times in 2016. Um, Following on from comments from Ray Moore, the the then tournament director at Indian Wells, that the, the WTA players were lucky to be able to ride on the coattails of the men and that they should get down on their knees and thank them. Uh, He said the median pay gap between a woman in the top 100 and her opposite number on the men's tour is $120,624. The ITF calculated that more men can make a living from professional tennis than women in 2014. It was 336 versus 253. In 2016, the then and now world number one in the men's game, Novak Djokovic, said... I think that our men's tennis world, the ATP world, should fight for more because the stats are showing that we have much more spectators on the men's tennis matches. I think that's one of the reasons why maybe we should get awarded more. Women should fight for what they think they deserve and we should fight for what we think we deserve. As long as it's like that and there is data and stats available upon who attracts more attention – spectators and who sells more tickets and stuff like that in relation to that it has to be fairly distributed and Nadal too has cited market forces as the basis for for making prize money decisions you know it's I'm singling Djokovic out because he's the world number one and what he says matters and gets paid attention to but that is not an unusual opinion to to be expressed still at the top of the sport
2: He's the one who was prepared to speak out uh, publicly as well as being of that status. He's the one who says a lot of words in his press conference and and we can quote. But you're right. I mean, you go, as I said, when I was on the men's tour, that is absolutely the prevailing attitude. It was back then. I'm pretty sure it still is today. Um, I know why they're making that argument. I just think it's wrong first of all but also massively short-sighted the the biggest asset for tennis overall is the fact that men and women both play it and that women's tennis is the biggest women's sport in the world um most successful and it should be celebrated it should be a selling point all of its own and they've got an opportunity um and it should be taken
4: Was it last year or maybe two years ago, certainly recently, where Murray said that he's had conversations with men who said they would take a pay cut if it meant that they were earning more than the women? Mm. I mean, that right there just sums up the problem. I mean, how, as you said, short-sighted, dumb take, and yet that is how a lot of men feel in that locker room. I think the reason I asked Billie Jean King that question at the end is it's not over. Like there's, there's more to be fought for. There's, there's more that can be done. There's more that needs to be done. And I think an attitude shift is a big part of it as well.
3: Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this, this podcast is the journey towards equal prize money, not the journey towards equality. Um, Because we're far from a situation where women have equality and we're even further from a situation where women have equity and that is a distinction um, Billie Jean King made in a a post in an Instagram story this week actually and it really drew my attention because it so pithily um, explained the difference between those two concepts and in so doing debunked the whole, well, much of the, Market forces guff that you hear, um, and I, I I didn't manage to for some reason I didn't screenshot the story, so I can't find Billie Jean's exact words. But equality means each individual or group of people is given the same resources or opportunities. Equity recognises that each person has different circumstances and allocates the exact resources and opportunities needed to reach an equal outcome. So equity would be recognising the role that scheduling and airtime and language play in our perceptions of and consumption of sport and distributing those resources in order to achieve an outcome of equality, and there's lots more I could say about that. But um, I thought it was, yeah, a brilliant point made by Billie Jean King.
4: I remember Mitch Purse, the United States Women's National Team player, was invited to the White House recently with Megan Rapinoe, and they gave a speech about what needs to be done for women in sport. And, and she came up with this amazing metaphor, which I think really... Sort of feeds into this, and she said, You would never expect a flower to bloom without water, but women in sport have been denied water, sunlight, and soil, and are somehow still expected to blossom. Invest in women, then let's talk and see what the return is and I just thought that that summed up what we 're talking about here.
3: Uh, so good. Ah, oh, I feel at once energized and depressed. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, I mostly feel completely inspired by Billie Jean King and some of the people that we've talked to and heard about in this podcast. Um, there is still a long way to go, um, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, I've loved this podcast. I mean, I love all re- of Relived, but I really have loved this podcast. Um, and of course, it would not have been anywhere close to the same without Billie Jean King and Larry Scott, it would have been accoutrement alone. <laughs> um, and that does not a, a tasty meal make. Um, so thank you to, to them. Thank you also to Jeff Augustine, our guest editor for this podcast. I um, hope we've answered all of your questions um and thank you for providing a framework for our research and our our thoughts on the issue um yeah, as I said, you, as all our guest editors have have done us proud um yeah, that was fun wasn't it fascinating we've We've been on a journey <laughs> sure have um, and matt's hair is now it. that bit longer than when we started,
2: <laughs> yep. <laughs> At least another centimetre.
3: Um, so yeah, thanks to our mascots, as per usual, Zeus, Mousel, Mousel, Rogue. Thanks to Billie Jean King for so many things, <laughs> but uh, in this particular inst- instance, for sponsoring Billie Jean. Um, thanks also to our executive producer, Chris Albert Lee. Uh, we'll be back with Daily Wimbledon podcast, talking about the present and a little bit the future. Um very little chat about the past, only the recent past. Uh, they start from Sunday and they will take you right the way through the championship. So do join us for then. Tell your friends um, so that they can get on board the bandwagon in time for Wimbledon. And we'll speak to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quins.